there's this thing about audacity, you know, in the in the Obama age, the the audacity to really strive for huge things, to really make it matter, is is something that's out there. But with audacity, you know, the difference between audacity and naivete might be transactional competence. Hmm. You can you know have these big thoughts and strive for for big things, but if you if you can't actually organize the effort of people, if you can't get the help that you need to actually succeed in those kinds of things to, at the scale that is required for you to not be full of it, then then you are full of it. Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology. We are the leading business education in transactional competence. Broadcasting from Ojai, California, this podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, real results, and real satisfaction, not just at work, but in every area of life. You'll hear how these ambitious professionals studied, practiced, and applied our approach and found that those who transact powerfully thrive. Our featured interview today is with Nathan Havey, founder of Thrive Consulting. Nathan is a sought-after presenter on Conscious Business, and is an active member of the American Sustainable Business Council and an enthusiastic participant in the conscious capitalism movement. He's a dynamic leader who serves as chairman of the board for the Conscious Company magazine. And his words, business is the greatest organizer of human effort. And he has much to say about the opportunities we all have to cause positive change. His entrepreneurial journey includes confronting his own conceit and entitlement. And as he states, I was the classic entitled millennial, unwilling to put in the work to get good, falsely assuming I was naturally gifted beyond compare and impatient with those who couldn't see my brilliance. I've invited Nathan to discuss his journey and he's offered himself up as a study in conceit and entitlements. And I think, Nathan, in your words, you're happy to be the poster child of conceit. <laughs> uh, after the feature, we'll do a talk by co-founder Kirk and Tibbles on the subject of conceit and entitlement and how that arises when you and I are simply naive to the reciprocation required in all our transactions. And with that, Nathan, again, welcome. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure, John. Well, first of all, I want to give you the opportunity to share a little bit of your own story and, and who you are. So if you would, please introduce yourself. Sure. Nathan Havey. I am one of the older millennials. Millennials start in 1980. Um, I'm born in 1982. So I have a lot of the baggage that goes with that phrase. I kind of got started wanting to do good, really wanted to contribute to societal improvement in some way. I was really involved in politics growing up and wanted to go to Washington, D.C. to sort of play in the big leagues and hopefully contribute to legislative progress for sort of social benefit. And, and I quickly realized, working in Congress, that that is not really the best venue for somebody that doesn't have a lot of patience. Uh, you, you can see change, but it is uh, generational in scope there. And I, I definitely didn't want to spend a whole career working on a single issue to maybe, after 30 or 40 years, see it enacted into law. So decided to leave 
the hill and start working on, uh, on, on other things. And one of the things that I saw as an opportunity was business. I started with consumer-driven efforts, uh, you know, educating consumers to make smarter purchasing choices that would uh, create the demand for more ethical business and slowly learned and studied and uh, now find that businesses can lead on this and that doing so is actually better for their bottom line in addition to the social bottom line that businesses should also be paying attention to. To sort of overview, there was that and lots of failure and bumping up against my own transactional incompetence and all of the uh, conceit and entitlement that goes with it, John. That's really great. All right, well, let's go back to the the subject of millennials for just a moment because I sometimes feel bad for bad press on millennials. It's my experience that we all have naivete in some way, shape, or form, whether or not we're millennials or baby boomers or whatever the case may be. So you you claim uh, some of your own naivete or, or your own conceit as a millennial. Do you accept that claim or anything you'd like to say about that? I think that I accept it, absolutely. And like any sort of broad sweeping statement, it, it doesn't show you the whole picture. The, the stats on this are, are very interesting uh, in that millennials are – impatient. They are somewhat entitled, uh, and with entitlement definitely comes a level of conceit. Uh, but the other thing about millennials is that they really want to make a difference. Uh, they, they care more than previous generations that were measured about social progress, about social justice. Uh, they want their work to mean something, and they are impatient about it. So, so the other frame that you could put on that, you may have to bleep this, but millennials just have a very low tolerance for bullshit. And in many organizations, what is be patient and earn your chips and, and maybe you'll be able to, to rise in your career here is actually leadership blind spots. It, it is suboptimal functioning for organizations. And so through one lens, absolutely, there's entitlement and conceit. And through another, there is this energy and passion to serve and to contribute. If it isn't tapped into well, um, is a huge lost opportunity. Generationally speaking, where do you think that came from? You know, I don't know. Um, there's a couple of different narratives that are out there, and I, I haven't done the study on this to be able to say with any authority, but uh, one of them is sort of everyone gets a trophy parenting philosophy of the really the 80s. I'm certainly a product of that, where you are special, you are good, you can do anything you want. You just have to you know, work hard and put your mind to it. And I think that that, that really created this narrative where a lot, of, a lot of people that are in the millennial age bracket are expecting that that's going to just happen. Uh, that, that that's the narrative they've been brought up with. So, of course, that's going to happen for me. And when they confront the work that is required there and the reality that that stuff doesn't just happen and that you actually have to learn how to be very effective as a transactor to really move anything like that, I think that a lot of folks get really disillusioned. They get frustrated. Some give up and some learn the lessons. So if they're not transacting well, what would you say they're missing? I, I was wondering about this actually, John, as I was preparing for this, and and um, you know, there's this thing about audacity. You know, in the in the Obama age, the the audacity to really strive for huge things, to really make it matter, is is something that's out there, but. With audacity, you know, the difference between audacity and naivete might be transactional competence. Hmm. You can, you know, have these big thoughts and strive for, for big things, but if you, if you can't actually organize the effort of people, if you can't get the help that you need to actually succeed in those kinds of things, to, at the scale that is required for you to not be full of it, 
then then you are full of it. That's just a conceit and naivete and to, to sort of cross the bridge into what is actual audacity, accurate thinking, capable ambition. I think that, that uh, transactional competence and the ability to organize the efforts of others, uh, which is kind of one and the same thing, is, is the, the major difference there. So then let's get personal about this. It, it sounds like you have some personal journey about that. What did you discover about that for yourself in your own journey? Sure. So there are probably too many examples of um, my <laughs> conceit and entitlement and the trouble I got myself into as a result of them to mention on this one interview. But one of the big ones, I think, was this. I uh, was given a fairly significant amount of responsibility a few years ago in, in a small company. I was kind of promoted to be an account director. And um, uh, I was working with some very large, very influential nonprofit organizations, sort of activist organizations in American politics. And I would write email copy for them. I would propose the way that campaigns should be framed, come up with ideas for how to engage the hundreds of thousands of people that they had on their email lists in such a way that it would actually affect legislation and help to move things through the House and Senate. And as a 20-something with very little experience, very little track record, very little that I could show to, to say that I was, I was fit to be calling these shots and, and kind of advising, uh, I would come up with these grand ideas, usually on the spur of the moment and before you know testing them, before really thinking it through and doing some due diligence and some homework, I would just go and pitch them straight to the clients uh, who were these seasoned veterans at the top of these organizations in many cases. And when they didn't say, oh, Nathan, that's totally brilliant. Uh, <laughs> you have saved us. Thank you so much for your, I, I just, I, I, can't, I can't imagine what we would do without you. When they pushed back <laughs> and said, well, what about this? And what about that? And have you thought about this? Um, I just became impatient and frustrated uh, because they were, in my view, trying to just make things complicated and, and didn't see sort of the obvious simplicity in what I was proposing. Part of my frustration led to my disengaging. Rather than going through the complexity uh, to be able to really deal with it all and come up with things that are really elegant, simple solutions on the other side of the complexity, I, I decided to disengage. And so started working on side projects that were easier, where I could call the shots with a, you know, a couple of friends that didn't know any better, and took my attention off of those accounts. And so one particular week, I uh, came into work to find my boss sternly looking at me, and he told me that the two of those major accounts had ended their contracts with the company mm. and that uh, uh, I was being terminated. And I now see that I, I earned that termination. But at the time, it was a shock that, that something like that could happen to someone who was naturally as talented and brilliant as I was. So let's go back to conceit and entitlement and, and ask ourselves the question, where do you see conceit and entitlement in the mind of the business world about this? One of the big places is uh, where, where business leaders are sort of self-righteously committed to the viewpoint that they have no responsibility for the impacts of their business. As long as they're behaving within the letter of the law, then it's somebody else's problem. If I'm polluting, it's somebody else's problem. If they can't get better than a minimum wage job, it's somebody else's problem if the health care and benefits that I'm providing don't match what they need. 
for a business leader to think that that's true is a very entitled position. There's some conceit there that kind of suggests that one way or another, they matter more than their employees. There's a disequity that's sort of inherently assumed there. That's just a, ma a major place. Whereas I think a more accurate thinking approach is yes, there are market forces at play. Uh, yes, uh, you know you, you can't run a business if you don't pay any attention to your bottom line. But I think that the, the, there's a metaphor that I heard recently for this that's great, which is that the, the culture of a workplace and the revenues, the financial revenues that come are, are two ends of the same stick. So you can, you can try to lift the stick up as best you can without moving that other end and maximize your profits. But in truth, the only way to get beyond a certain level is to pick up the entire stick, which means raising all parts of that. One of the things that we get asked often is questions about ethics. For example, when you're teaching transactional competence, what you're doing fundamentally is you're teaching individuals and their enterprises to be able to as you said, organize the efforts of a great number of people, to have people say yes, to have people comply, to have people say, I want that, to, to, to comply with a business offer or to comply with uh, commitments of an enterprise, if you will. And sometimes people say, well, is it ethical to get people to say yes? And we would often say back to that person, well, is what you do ethical is what you offer something that makes a difference. Are you offering help or are you doing something else? And I don't think I've had a person say anything, but well, no, my business helps people. The only reason I got into business is because I wanted to help people save time, save money, improve their life, have more fun, whatever it may be. I rarely find someone who is not in business for any other reason than to help people. Yet, we have a great number of stories, bits in the news. Certainly, everybody that's ever ambitious in any movie is always an evil person. <laughs> so there seems to be a little bit of both happening. And I'm not going to pretend that there are evildoers who are, uh, are not working uh, to make you know, life better for people. But in your view of all that I just said, what do you find to be factual about most business owners? I actually have the same perception, John, that when you ask people on the personal level, uh, what are you working for? There are very few people that will tell you they don't care at all about the social impact of their business, and they are in it for the money and the money only. I don't think that I've ever actually met, well, there might be one or two people that have met in my life that, that say that with a straight face. But the vast majority of people, and I, I think that this is a human phenomenon, I think that, uh, that, that you've got to have a pretty distorted personal ethics uh, to, uh, to be able to really turn a blind eye and just say, you know, you fend for yourself, I don't need you. Uh, that's, that's, you know, kind of the opposite of what we talk about in terms of transactional competence. I agree. I think that that's, uh, that is what most people want to do. And I think there is a business as usual. There is a, a way that we talk about it and a way that we think about it that is contributing to many blind spots for, for business folks. And, and if, if I may, John, I can illustrate the point actually best if we go to the nonprofit world. Sure. Because a lot of times business owners will say, you know, that this product will help people. That's why it's here, right? And, and certainly, uh, if there isn't some measure of help for a given product, it's not going to sell. So that, that is part of the deal. 
If you'd like to decode the mysteries of an ambitious life, you can register for the Influence Ecology webinar called Ambitious Living, The Eight Defining Principles. This free one-hour webinar offers eight principles practiced by the most successful and effective men and women we know. To give you a taste, here's one of the principles. It's called accurate thinking. The essential idea is this. You and I are always transacting to produce a better income, influential identity, and satisfying work. These situations, money, career, and work, are but three of 14 unavoidable conditions of life. If you don't think accurately about these conditions and how you'll satisfy each of them, you will likely produce hardship for yourself and your family. So how do you think accurately about these and other conditions of life? Attend the webinar to find out more. Once registered, you'll receive the 2016 edition of Ambitious Living, a 12-page guide offering a blueprint for the eight defining principles, each of which asks important questions to help direct your aims. To learn more, you can find the link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast, or from your mobile phone, you can click the image art for this episode to find a link to register. Okay, back to the show. People start nonprofits because they want to make some sort of a, a difference. And in most nonprofits, and I, I do say most, there is this shift that happens at some point where as soon as they actually start to have any success at all, as soon as they get their first grant or they have some money where they're able to hire people and they're actually a nonprofit with people working in it, the implicit purpose of the nonprofit becomes in the best of times a dual purpose where, where there is, yes, there's the thing that we're working on, but then there's also our own survival. And we have to dedicate, usually it's about half of the resources of the organization to development and making sure that we can continue to do the good work that we want to do with the other half. The demands on people to sacrifice for the mission, to take a reduced salary because you can't make money and do good. That narrative is one of the things that, that we sort of need to, to interrupt. The very fact that we call it a nonprofit, because what do nonprofits do, right? They do good then what does a for-profit do? <laughs> well, it can't be good, right? But it, it is, and it can be. And so it's that sort of that thing about helping. And if indeed a business was founded to make some sort of a difference through a product or service, it has the same problem as the nonprofit where that may be the inception, but it's real easy to slip into survival. And, and as soon as you're making decisions to keep the doors open, you have lost sight of your true purpose. That robs you of your employee engagement. It robs you of creativity and innovation. There's just a different space there. Whereas if you can stay focused on the purpose and not Pollyanna-ish, not you know crossing your fingers and hoping that things will work out, rigorously accurate thinking, transacting for the difference that you want to make and having the help that you want to give actually see the impact that it can have. When you stay focused there, that's how to build a great culture. That's tremendous business leadership. Leadership, and that's the kind of thing that happens in those companies I referenced earlier that outperform the market by such large margins. Very good. Well, I'm going to go back to the millennials here for just a minute because one of the things I love about the millennials is that they live online. I'll say it may be a broad generalization, <laughs> but one of the things that's great about that is, is that from a bottom-up point of view, in other words, from a very purely democratic point of view, 
the millennials will tell you that a restaurant's bad or that the service is no good or the taxi driver was great or <laughs> with Uber, Uber will say the taxi rider was awful. Mm-hmm. And it produces a kind of, rather than in a different marketplace, it starts to produce an environment where we are all voting on the value of someone else's help. We are all voting all the time, and it's much more easy to see. It's much more easy to track. You know, you can be poorly rated, poorly reviewed if you're a criminal, if you're a jerk. There is something to be said about where things are headed in the digital world in terms of all of that rating, ranking, getting the the 'er ne'er-do-wells out, acknowledging and praising the people doing good. Anything that you would like to say about that? And is there anything about the conscious capitalism movement or the conscious business movement that is addressing that or directing that kind of activity? To use an influence ecology term, environment, uh, just understanding uh, all of the various things that, that can and do impact your, your efforts. And certainly, the, uh, I think the word might be transparency that online tools have uh, allowed is uh, an absolute game changer. There's a, a narrative within conscious capitalism that talks about how kind of the dominant corporate culture that still is dominant today is a, uh, a result of military culture in World War II. That when, when all those folks came back home and they, they got to work doing what they were doing, they had achieved probably the greatest thing that they ever would in their lifetime. Right? They were part of something that absolutely changed the world and shaped it for, for generations and generations to come. And the organizational structures that achieved that result, surely, were the best kind of structures. And so they, they implemented that in their workplaces. And that was a very hierarchical, top-down, information hoarding, you only need to know what you need to know, kind of a, a culture. And, and we still, in many ways, have been trained and are sort of swimming in that in that current of thinking for for business. And the online world and the transparency that it provides is a direct affront to that uh, paradigm. So when your customers uh, can uh, can really tell the truth about you. Uh, it's one of the, the things that many companies that have tried to uh, make a positive step, environmentally speaking, and then want immediate credit for it, speaking of conceit and entitlement, mm. uh, when they still have all kinds of other things that are not going right, and, and they're shocked when the internet responds uh, very cruelly to what, what seems like a uh, just a scratch on the surface of the larger issue uh, of their environmental record. It's that kind of thing where secrets can't really be kept anymore. And if you're not good to your employees, they will tell other people that too. And so it really behooves us to really have to live our cultural values to all of our stakeholders. Uh, and, and in conscious capitalism, those are six specific areas. There's your customers, your employees, your shareholders, the community where you do business, your suppliers, and the environment. So those six, uh, you've got to be good to all of those people. You've got to transact well with all of them, or you'll pay the price in a transparent marketplace, internally and externally. Very good. Well, I think what I want to finally turn our attention to is where would you say that the world is generally naive or has some conceit about the millennials and what we can learn from that generation? 
I, I would say... I say it because I had a conversation with Kirkland about this and just knowing that he, that you and I were going to talk. And one of the things that we did address for ourselves is the kind of conceit and entitlement that we never consider. It's often easy to point to another and say, wow, look at the conceit over there. And what I love about the opportunity that you've provided us today is, is you've agreed to be the poster child of conceit and, and entitlement just for the sake of all of us seeing it for ourselves. And so Kirkland and I look for ourselves. And, and one thing I can certainly see is, is that I have some conceit about the millennials mm-hmm. and what I learned from them. I, you may not know this, but I'm uh, as an inventor personality, the, the long-term future personality that we study, I am thinking now about how millennials will want to consume what we do compared to the baby boomers or perhaps even gen, Generation Z, children of today, if you will. And so what would you say that, that we have to learn about the millennials? There's, a, there's a, a, a distinction that I have really loved. And I think the first person who told me about this was a woman named Lori Hanno, who is in uh, New Hampshire. And she's, she's a great uh, leadership consultant. But she said that there's, a, there's this thing about expert culture versus learning culture. And, and I think that this is a, a great just note for this, that when you're in expert culture, you, you are considered an expert and an expert is supposed to know, right? And, and anything an expert doesn't know is a challenge to their expertise. And, and traditionally, the management structure, if you are a leader, even a low-level leader, uh, you need to be the expert compared with the people that you're leading. Um, and so it, it has you not be open to learning new things. Um, it has you need to constantly assert and demonstrate your expertise to, uh, to constantly sort of show that you deserve to be where you are. You deserve to be in this, this role of an expert. And with that comes great conceit and entitlement again. And this one rubs millennials the wrong way in a big way. Forgive me, I'm going to say it again, the tolerance for bullshit. Mm. Because when, when you assert... Uh, something without demonstrating it. When you, when you rely on tradition or on that's just the way it goes or on, hey kid, I've been doing this for 12 years, what do you know? There is for a millennial, and I think for a lot of people, this disengaging quality of something like that. And, and, and really it is not conscious, but it's absolutely the intention of the expert when they respond to something like that to just shut you up so that you'll go along with it, to try and and produce your compliance that way. But in a learning culture, where there is a tremendous emphasis placed on everyone learning together, uh, correct recognition that uh, the world is moving too fast in, in all areas of knowledge for anybody to be an actual expert, that there's always different angles, there's always new things to learn and different perspectives, that if you're relying on your expertise and insisting that others respect you for it, you're losing a huge opportunity of creating a learning culture where you are happy to be wrong. Where, where you want to have people challenge your thinking because you can distinguish your own conceit and entitlement when people do that. And so the 22-year-old millennial that says, why do you do it this way, is actually a huge opportunity for you to say, huh, why do we do it this way? And if, you, if it doesn't actually make sense, that, that rookie, there's a book called Rookie Smarts that makes this point really well. But, but that's, that's one of the major opportunities. And so for millennials, to, to get back to exactly what your question was, John, we, they, they, we want to be at the table. We want to have the discussions. We want to be in the room. We want to figure out you know, how we can work with people. And when someone respects us for that, 
even harshly, even somebody that's going to say, kid, you don't know what you're talking about, but, but I can see your passion. Let's see what we can do to get you educated so you can start seeing the complexity here. There's, there's one story that a woman told at an event that I was at just this last week where uh, she, her favorite boss she ever had was the one that took her aside and said, you talk too much. Shut up <laughs> and listen. And you will learn things, and I will help you learn those things because you've got promise. It's that kind of thing that if, if a millennial, and, and I'm definitely speaking for my, myself here, if, if we feel like there's somebody that does know more than us that's going to help us learn the ropes, that's going to help us understand how to play the game. And, and for me, that's what Influence Ecology is, by the way, is, is you guys do know this stuff, and I recognize that, and, and I... I'm so eager to soak it up because I just know that it's going to help me be better. And as I learn and, you know, with each webinar and each conference I go to and each study paper I complete, I know that I'm getting better. Not there yet, but man, I'm getting better. And so it's that feeling of progress that I think millennials are super hungry for because it's still rare. And, and the, the organizations and the leaders that can provide that for people are the ones that are going to find lines of millennials uh, waiting to come work for them and, and, and contribute to the best of their ability. That's great. All right. Well, I want to give you a final opportunity to tell people how they can contact you or how they might participate in what you're doing. Thank you, John. So if you want to learn more about this stuff, subscribe to Conscious Company Magazine. And if you want to really learn a lot more about this, check out the Conscious Company Magazine workshop. That's at ConsciousCompanyMagazine.com slash workshop. That's really great. All right, good. And we'll, of course, put all of those things into our show notes. We'll provide the links so you can find out more. Nathan, thank you so very much. This was such a pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough for all that you you offered us here. Uh, so many lessons about conceit and entitlement. Can't wait to listen to this again. Good. And let me just say that for those that hear in everything that I've said, the places that I still have a ton of conceit and entitlement, shoot me an email because I'd love to know about that stuff and continue to grow. Today's Guru Talk is by co-founder Kirkland Tibbles on this very subject. You'll learn how conceit or entitlement arises when you and I are naive to the reciprocation required in all our transactions. It is this misunderstanding that often costs us valuable time and money and sometimes earns us reputations in which others seek to keep their distance. So here's the talk. The ground on which all civilized society rests is trust. Trust in the form of assurance that if I as an individual, part of a community, contribute what little I can in terms of my own limited personal resource to the greater good of the community, that I will be afforded the resources that I need from that community to live a good life. When people talk about entitlement, I don't think they really know what it is they're speaking for or against. The kind of attitude or behavior we refer to when we speak of this entitlement is indifference, ignorance, or outright disrespect for reciprocation. This notion that people see themselves as deserving of care and use of limited resources without any concern for some reciprocation is the fertile ground on which distrust begins to find its roots. Civilized societies are, as Leakey and Lewin put it, a kind of honored network of obligation. This web of indebtedness, Matt Ridley calls it in his book Origin of Virtue, is viewed by cultural anthropologists as a unique adaptive mechanism which allows for the division of labor, the exchange of diverse forms of goods and different services, and the creation of interdependencies that bind individuals together into highly efficient units. 
Reciprocation lowers the natural inhibitions against transactions that must be begun by one person's providing personal resources to another, says Caldini in his book Influence. Sophisticated and coordinated systems of aid, gift-giving, defense, and trade become possible, bringing immense benefits to societies that possess them. With such clearly adaptive consequences for culture, he continues, it is not surprising that the rule of reciprocation is so deeply implanted in us by the process of socialization we all undergo, and I'll add, the sociality we all must confront. When an attitude of entitlement takes hold, it turns into a kind of behavior that we call conceit. It is a wedge that begins to divide societies and cultures in dangerous ways. Fear begins to take over, and trust in its most fundamental forms begin to deteriorate. People become less likely to act without certainty or assurances that their efforts and resources will be met in equal measure. And you can see this playing out. We start to build walls, we become highly protective, and worse, radically skeptical. If you'd like to know more about influence ecology and our approach, check out our webinar, Ambitious Living, The Eight Defining Principles. The webinar is available globally. We'll teach you the core principles practiced by the most successful and effective men and women we know. This webinar is for those who aspire to an influential life that provides measurable satisfaction for themselves, their family, and their organizations. This webinar is specifically designed for those who don't want to sacrifice a well-balanced life for superior financial rewards. They want it all. To find out more, you can find the link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008, and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. In our next episode, we feature an interview with Marnie Power an organizational development and learning specialist at the University of Virginia. When we create consequences, we are creating consequences that make taking the actions a foregone conclusion. I'm not going to get into a lot of them, but we are looking at things that you don't want to have happen. One of my favorites is somebody's consequence was that if she didn't do the actions, and by the way, folks, consequences are always against actions. We don't have control of the results. The only thing we can promise and we have absolute control of is the actions that we're going to take with a commitment to produce the result. So this particular person, her consequence, if she didn't take the actions, was she had to go and campaign for an opposing political party four hours a week for six months. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to share it with others, you can find it and share it from our website at influenceecology.com. You can also find us on iTunes to subscribe. We'd love to know what you think, so please take a moment and offer us a rating and a review. Thank you for another great episode of the Influence Ecology podcast. I'm your host, John Patterson. I'd like to thank our guest, Nathan Heavy, for offering his time and wisdom. This podcast is made possible by the brilliant work of the Influence Ecology staff, mentors, and members around the world. Finally, I'd like to thank our producer, Jason Kelly, 
Editing and music by Bell Ringer Productions, music supervisors Dashley LeCorps and Marcus Bell.